Hello, NSA. Welcome to the April issue of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Jim Cathcart. Our theme for April is growth. Spring is the natural time for all of us to reach out to the opportunities around us and take new actions. Speaking of taking action, the first interview this month is the final installment of my interview with my fellow members of Speakers Roundtable. These are past NSA presidents, board members, cabinet winners, and CPAEs. They are answering the question, what does it really take to succeed in speaking? This is one you'll want to hear repeatedly and discuss with others. That's why I placed it first so you can easily access it. What does it take to succeed in the business of professional speaking and training? Uh, I'm Don Hudson. And Jim, I'd say rule number one is do a great job on the platform. That's got to be our first and foremost focus. Because if you're going to have staying power and be in this business for decades, you've got to under-promise and over-deliver. Oh, my name is Mike Rayburn, and uh, uh, tell you off of what Don said, and also something that Larry Wingett said a long time. I like the way he summed up an old business principle, and that is, for any business success, it's just two things. Number one, be really, really, really good. And number two, ask lots and lots and lots of people to buy. And if your business is not working, you're failing on one or the other or both of those sides of the equation. Hi, this is Bill Backrack. I agree with what Don said about being really, really good, but what happens when you're getting started if you're not nearly as good as you're going to be? So you have to be willing to do what Mike said, and that's make a lot of calls and get yourself booked. So even if you currently aren't great, the only way you're going to get great is to speak a lot. The only way you're going to speak a lot is if you do a lot of sales and marketing and business development work. So to Don's point, just make sure that you're really, really good relative to the fee that you're currently charging so you can continue to get really, really great by being on the platform a lot. Shep Hyken, here's a, a line that I like to use. The job isn't doing the speech, it's getting the speech. That's your real job. You need to spend eight to 10 hours a day at your business and don't be confused that doing a speech is really part of that business. You need to actually define what your numbers need to be to survive, how many speeches you need to get there, and then work and do what it takes to make that happen. Patricia Fripp, you need to be consistent, disciplined, listen to your clients, and in all aspects of your business, be reliable, repeatable, and responsible. Dr. Kenneth McFarlane, that we held up as the Dean of American Speakers, said, say something of interest to you and your audience. Say it well and stop. And when you have finished, they should know what you know and how you know it. And for those of us in the room with many years of experience, we always have to look at ways and experiences that help us fall in love with the profession and what we do. And that's how it stays fresh. Hi, this is Mark Sanborn, and I think there are three questions you can use to build out any speaking career, whether you're just beginning or you've been in it for a while. The first question is, what is my message? And that is, what is unique to you, not what do you talk about, because that's a topic. People want to know what you know, what you've experienced, what you bring to the party. So the first question is, what is my message? The second question is, who will pay me to hear it? 
That's your target audience. You know, I've been told by people that their message is universally applicable, and while that may be true at some kind of philosophical level, there's a much smaller universe of people who are willing to pay you for what you have to say. You need to know who they are. And the third question, which is a marketing question, is how will they find out about you? Because if you've got a target market that will pay you and a good message, but they don't know about it, then you've got a marketing problem. So I concur with my colleagues, being good on the platform is paramount, but you've also got to have a unique message as well as an audience that's willing to pay for it. When I went to my first NSA convention, I was fortunate that Joe Charbonneau was still alive, and he did a session called What It Really Takes to Make It as a Professional Speaker, and he described a very simple formula. He calls it 13-13-12-12, and that means you make 50 contacts a week, 13 on Monday, 13 on Tuesday, 12 on Wednesday, 12 on Thursday, with decision makers or meeting planners. That's not leaving a message. Those are actual contacts. Joe Charbonneau's principles are just as relevant today if you want to get booked so you can someday be great. Beautiful. Peter Legg. For me, I decided I wanted to be an entertainer and a speaker, but I needed to learn to be the very best speaker I possibly could before you'd, you'd pay me. So how do you do that? For, for me, I went to as many NSA conventions as I could, and I just watched, and I just listened. And I liked you, and I didn't like her, and I liked him, and I didn't like them. And I took the very best and thought, that's really good. I, I, could, I could do that. I watched talk show hosts. I watched their guests, who worked, who didn't. I watched many preachers on Sunday mornings. Mm -hmm. Who had energy in their voice? Who had passion and commitment? Who was just kind of reading scripture, and who was really really living it. I spoke anywhere I possibly could. Whether I was good or bad, I was learning to be good. And then at some point, I decided, I think I can charge money for this. Uh, Dan Thurman here. Like many of my colleagues here, such as Giovanni and Mike Rayburn, I had the, uh, the fortune to enter, enter the speaking business through the world of entertainment. I, I cut my teeth on, on doing performances, variety shows, comedy shows, using acrobatics and some of the other f physical skills that I do. And at a very early age, developed those rudimentary skills of how to hold an audience, how to capture an audience, how to feel the pulse of a room. And, and those are the types of things, Peter, you're referring to is in terms of how do you get that? How do you understand that? Well, I, you know, I, I think that it's much easier for entertainers who've developed those skills to segue into a world of speaking than it is for people who are content experts to say, how do I become uh, a master performer? But it's, it's certainly possible, and there are other ways to do that. I would suggest that you uh, enroll in some acting classes, improv classes, get involved in doing any type of, of performance, and study entertainers as well as studying other speakers. You can learn just as much or more from people who are experts in the, in the world of entertainment uh, than you can that will be applicable to this business. Mm -hmm. Giovanni Libero. Right after Dan, you know, we're motivational performers. And uh, you know, coming from showmanship, it's easy to wow the audience with our amazing skills. But in the beginning, I think my, my messages were very surface level. But over time, they became more and more meaningful, more powerful, more content-driven. Think to yourself, how do you want the audience to be different at the end of your program? 
Outstanding. And Gio, Dan again, uh, I think that's a process that's twofold. It's, it's deepening your own content, your understanding, your writing, and your authority, but also developing the confidence that says, I am the messenger, and I'm capable, and I, I'm worthy of develop, de uh, delivering this message in a powerful way. So that, that segment, or that segue of going from entertainer with a bit of a message to being a speaker who also happens to have powerful entertainment value is one that takes time. Danny Cox. Yes. Uh, Elbert Hubbard, a uh, great speaker from the late 1800s and early uh, 1900s, he said, a great speaker is inspired by many, but a copy of none. Well said. Thank you. Bert Decker. Uh, I love uh, Malcolm Gladwell's definition of mastery, because if you look around the room, you got mastery in a wide variety of areas, and it's either 10,000 hours or 10 years, and that's what you have to put in to get to the top level. Shep Hyken here. Every single day, we have an opportunity to learn more and more about our particular expertise. Personally, I use Google Alerts and I use keywords to topics that I'm interested in. And on a daily basis, can look at literally dozens of articles by other subject matter experts. The goal is not to regurgitate that information, but to interpret it, personalize it, and put my personal spin on it. Well said. Jim Rohde here. Uh, Dan Burst just mentioned research. There is uh, my market particularly as dentists, every single meeting I go to, I try to give a quote or a fact that came out of this week's Wall Street Journal that relates to healthcare that's relevant to them. That's up-to-date research. Very good. Scott McCain. Jim, I think there's a conundrum sometimes involved with this, and that is to be a better speaker, we have to focus on ourselves, but to book more speeches, we have to focus on others. And my speaking career grew when I started asking two questions. Number one, what, what pain can I solve for them? How can I help them as opposed to my financial needs and how many I need to book? So that, that type of focus. But then the second question came a little bit later on in my career, and I wish I would have asked it sooner, which is, why would someone book me as opposed to the other alternatives? It's not just that we have to be the best speaker. We have to provide some kind of something that is not out there in the marketplace. Now, early in your career, it's because you're cheaper. <laughs> you know, I mean, you have a lower fee. or you. But unless there is some compelling reason for the customer to choose you over someone else, there's no reason for them to choose you. And so I, I tried to find ways to make what I provided to be an advantage in the marketplace. Very good. Patricia Fripp? Most people start with a Google search. Mm -hmm. So unless you have an ongoing consistent, relentless marketing program that can be inexpensive at the beginning of your career with YouTube and blogging and developing a website because the world is not looking for us. I look at my office, how many years I've been in business with thousands of clients. And the first question is, may I ask, how you calling? Were you referred or am I the end of a Google search? And it is amazing that probably 90% is a Google search. So as good as your presentation has to be, you have to make it easy for the world to find you, especially, and I'm with Dan Burris, I have built my business trying to get the phone to ring and have never had anyone make outgoing calls. Excellent. I told you you'd want to hear that one over and over again. Next, in my continuing exploration of parallel universes to speaking, I chat with Todd Newton, 
host of The Price is Right Roadshow, speaker, entertainer, and radio personality. Our guest today is Todd Newton. Now, Todd, you're in a different part of the speaking world than many of us. I would like to learn from the side of the speaking business that you've been very successful in. What is it we can pick up as speakers and bring over to the other side of that business? Or, for that matter, how do we get into your world? I tell you, Jim, I believe wholeheartedly that what we do as speakers is a form of show business. I believe that anytime you're on a stage and people have come to see you or come to hear you, we got to put some razzle dazzle into it. (laughs) I think the majority of the time people may feel like they're coming to be informed or educated or trained or consulted, but entertaining them while you inform them really, really delivers a strong impact. So what I do when I speak is I bring a little show business to my presentations. Mm -hmm. I don't have 30 years experience in sales or customer service like so many of our peers do, you yourself included. I I don't come from that background. I come from the fact that I have developed a a set of strategies and philosophies that have helped me and hundreds, hopefully thousands of others achieve this life that they have always wanted to achieve and therefore inspire others and and elevate their goals and accomplish even more things, whether it be at home or at business. Mm -hmm. And the way to share these tactics and these skills with people, to provide them with these tools, is by giving them a presentation that really hits home and one that they won't forget. One of the unique things about the route that you did take is that it's, it's the more interactive route. It's the route that involves more of your actually facilitating an exchange with the audience. And now you could make an argument that humorists, of course, do that too. And yes, they do. But yours is more of a processing of that instead of just, you know, just getting the laugh or leading them down a path and changing direction or, or whatever. So, You're right. Yeah. There, there aren't that many differences between hosting a game show and giving a really effective keynote presentation. Um, You want to invoke emotion in both. You want to maximize the moment in both. In game shows, my job is the ringleader. Mm -hmm. And Bob Barker, who was my mentor, and he took me under his wing and, and taught me things about this amazing craft that I'm so proud to be a part of. And when I'm up on stage, whether it's traveling, doing a live game show, or on television, my job is to make this moment as special for this contestant as I possibly can. Now, we cross that over to keynote presenting, to our professional speaking career. Mm -hmm. Our job, when we're on that stage, is to create the most memorable and spectacular, life-changing experiences we can for this audience. It's not about looking as good as we can possibly look. It's about giving them what they came to see and hear and for. And when I'm on stage giving a keynote or when I'm working in a breakout session or training, I approach that event through the eyes of the audience. How can I make this great for them? Mm -hmm. Because I get to do it all the time. But for them, it might be a once a year or with game shows, a once in a lifetime experience. And when you alter that perspective, it really creates the change you want. So how, do, how does a speaker uh, start exploring the entertainment side, the, you know, the, the uh, show business side of, of this world? 
I believe very, very much, Jim, that in this day and age, if you want to be a rock star speaker, and what I mean by rock star speaker is you have to appear almost bigger than life. I think that's audiences are expecting these days. It's all about celebrity now. They want to recognize the name. They want to recognize the face. And it's up to us to build the brand that does that. I believe we have to hit on all cylinders all the time. If a speaker wants to become a media darling, if they want, and I'm reading this great book right now called Guerrilla Publicity, which Mm -hmm. is absolutely fantastic. It gives hundreds of of little do them right now tips that you can do to get your name out there. But it's all about being the go-to expert of your local TV station, of of radio, online, writing your blog. Uh, my podcast now is is just about three months old and I love that and the and the feedback that I've gotten for that from that is fantastic. We all know that repetition builds reputation. The more people hear your name yeah. The more you develop that celebrity persona, you become the go-to person. And if we can be the go-to person for meeting planners and for corporate event bookers and for major corporations when they need speakers and trainers and consultants, then that's all the celebrity I need. What are some things you would say to your protégés who are listening? Do these things. These are going to pay off big. First of all, the first step and something you can do any time of day from right where you are is research articles that are in your line of expertise. Read the articles, comment on them and offer something. Mm-hmm. Offer a new piece of information regarding to that article so that you start to develop relationships. It's all about, as they say, shaking hands and kissing babies. Well, in yeah. the Internet age, it's all about commenting, posting, tagging, hashtagging. But let people know you're reading or watching or listening to what they're doing and that you appreciate it. Also let them know that you're available. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, I'm a great talker on uh, goal building. Yeah. Over obstacles, creating opportunities, trusting your instincts. That to me, that's my expertise. I can talk right, sing all day on that. Yeah. Let people know that. Now, let them know even when they don't need someone to, to go to for that. Just let them know you're there so that they do call when mm-hmm. the opportunity arises. Contact local media outlets as well. Radio stations, local TV stations are always looking for content, especially, and I emphasize the word local. You know, there are a lot of shows in in most cities that come on after the Today Show or after Good Morning America that focus on what's going on right at home. Mm -hmm. Filling an hour or two a day, and Jim, you've done enough talk shows and radio shows to know, filling two, three hours a day takes a lot of content. If you can become a reliable, entertaining, informative source, you're going to become a go-to expert, a go-to source for this type of information. And I'm not going to sit at home and do nothing when there's something that I could be doing that will benefit me or my business or my family in a certain way. So keep that in mind. And we talk about branding a lot in in NSA. Here's my take on branding. Look at your website, look at your bio, look at your one sheet, Mm -hmm. and it may be great. Everybody may love it, and that's fine. Maybe you don't need to fix it. People are always worrying, do I need to fix it? Yeah. Don't worry about fixing it. Focus on making it bigger. Everything in show business is big and bright, right? When someone goes to your website, Make it so flashy. 
make it so enticing, visually alluring, that they can't go away. Give them great content, great photographs. And I tell you, the difference between a, a good webs, a really good website, Jim, and a stellar website is no more than 500 bucks. The big difference is creativity, mm-hmm. right? You're already paying somebody to do your site. Pay them to do it right. Go get some great headshots taken of you. Put them up there. And when you go get your headshots taken, get three or four different outfits. Three or four. Use one for a year. Use another one for six months. Alternate them. Switch up your Twitter pages and your Facebook pages. Be big. Be green, Hollywood. Green screen it so you can change the background. Green screen yeah. Daylight's out of it. I tell you, I I just did uh, a shoot last week up in New York, and the gentleman was telling me that green screens now, you can get a green screen graphic that makes it look like you're in a a high-end office building or a corporate setting, less than $100. Technology has taken us to this place where Mm -hmm. everything is at our fingertips, and with that knowledge, why wouldn't we grab the biggest piece, the brightest piece possible? Man, I love that. Well, Todd, you have given us a wealth of value. And more than that, you've given us enthusiasm and and a joy that I think is absolutely contagious. So thank you for being with us on VOE. Thank you, Todd. Special correspondent Monica Wofford researched the folks who have built substantial business income by using assessments. Let's listen as she shows how you, too, can use assessments. One of the things I've done this year as host of VOE is I've reached out to other experts to become my special correspondents. And one of those special correspondents is Monica Wofford, CSP. Monica, tell us how assessments can assist a business, and uh, then we'll start exploring some of the different uses that might be available to a speaker. Not only are there different ways of using assessments, there are different assessment validation techniques. There are different uh, values from each different assessment. And we're talking about hundreds of different ones on the market. But what I discovered is there's a common theme among those of us who use assessments and those who've designed assessments in that the customer wants results. They want to know how to apply these tools to make their business better, make their business grow faster, improve results, and frankly, improve revenue. So given that common theme, we spoke with a number of people, uh, the first of which was was the granddaddy of assessments who worked a long time with you, I know, Dr. Tony Alessandra. Mm -hmm. And his take on the results is incredibly powerful. So how do you decide which assessment to use? So I think this next segment will be a great way to listen to Tony's take on how do you make that decision? It depends on the business you're in and who you're dealing with. For instance, let's say your, your, your main topics are communications. We have a listening assessment, a communications assessment. And I'm saying we, me, but, but I'm not the only person out there that does this. There are other vendors that you can get your assessments from, not just me. You've sure. got to you know, do, do your homework. If you are, for instance, a sales trainer, we have a sales 360 assessment where a salesperson answers the questions on how they do several different main activities that most successful salespeople must do, and then they send out a request to their manager, their sales manager, their peers, their fellow salespeople, and their customers or clients, and ask them, would you rate me on these areas? And then they get to see 
how they rated themselves and how others rate them. They get to see their strong points, their weak points, their blind spots. These reports point out just an array of things. Again, if you're a sales trainer, what you do is if you really want to show value in terms of how effective your, your training is, you do a pretest and say, okay, let's, let's put everybody through a sales effectiveness uh, uh, 360 assessment. Now let me do my sales program, and then 90 days later, let's put everybody through the same assessment and see what improvements were made, particularly in the eyes of the customer feedback. Outstanding. Tell us more. One of the people I spoke with was actually the founder of the two founders. It was a co-founded tool of the tool we use in Contagious Companies. This tool, incredibly valuable, according to what all of our clients tell us. And it's called the Core Multidimensional Awareness Profile. So here we have Sherry Buffington weighing in on her take on the multi-dimensions of the core profile. And then shortly after that, Gina Morgan talks about how this tool is different than some of the ones that are very popular in the market. Core map is truly multidimensional. It looks at the individual from multiple levels. So if we took Myers-Briggs, for example, and we took DISC, and we took the Wilson model, and, and we combined all those into a congruent system that we can now see why the individual's self-perception is different than how they're functioning in the world, for example, and, and there's a, an explanation for that. Those are all dimensions. Self-perception is a dimension. Your current functioning is a dimension. What you've developed or not developed is a, is a dimension. Emotional intelligence is a dimension. Mm. And, and CoreMap looks at all of those things. And so it goes a lot deeper and a lot broader than other assessments, and it really is multidimensional in that it's looking from every angle. And it, its big benefit is that it isn't a surface tool. If I've put on a mask as a child, which about 84% of the population has, and you give me something like a DISC or a Myers-Briggs or any other what we call single-dimensional assessment, I might be telling the absolute truth in what I report on that assessment. And the assessment is going to, to be valid in that it is going to accurately report what, what I stated. But if I don't know who I am, if I don't know that I'm reporting from my mask as opposed to from my truth, then what's going to show up is just going to be a validation of my mask. And what oh. CORE does is gets beneath the mask and looks at your truth and says, wait a minute, these aren't congruent. You must, it, it looks like you might have a mask on. Let's explore that. And another key difference that goes to that next step is looking at it from the whole brain approach. Most assessments make the assumption that if I profile one way, okay, that means that I fit in this nice little neat box, which means I don't fit in those other boxes. And mm -hmm. and what CORE does is, is it doesn't make that assumption. It says that, you know, as a fully functioning human being, not only do we have the capacity to do all of these things, you know, there's times when we need to do all of these things. That's what emotional intelligence is all about, the, the ability to evaluate a situation and adjust our style so that we get the best outcome possible. What CORE helps us to understand is that we're going to have a natural gift in one or two of these areas, and when we spend most of our time in our natural state, then we're energized in return. We, we gain energy by spending time in that area. It doesn't mean that we don't want to have some development in the, in the other areas that are, that are difficult for us, however, because by 
developing those tools to a degree um, just so much that we can call on them when necessary, it increases our emotional intelligence dramatically. Excellent. Kathy Potts, who I know as an NSA member, has more certifications behind her name than I think you and I put together. So she has the knowledge base of a number of different assessments. And I asked her a few key questions I think our listeners will find helpful. Most recently, I came across a prospect who wanted to understand why this was, why one of my assessments was being termed as a valid assessment. And they wanted to know to the degree that I connected them with the actual scientist of the tool. And mm. this, this person, it, it did make a decision for this person as to whether or not they were going to engage their company in the tool or not. Now, granted, this person was a left-brained thinker. This person was very much an academic and was a Ph.D. medical doctor. So when it comes to when it comes to us understanding all of the science behind the instruments that we use, a I do think it's important for you to understand it enough that you can talk to it. But b you need to understand the resource you're getting it from so that you can connect your clients or your prospects back to the original source. Chances are the original source is going to do a fantastic job of explaining it in the language that these people need to hear it from the science and and validity aspect. At the end of the day, the assessment is important as a first step, but what's Mm -hmm. most important is whether or not the person you're assessing is coachable. Whether it's a Myers-Briggs, whether it's a core map, whether it's a DISC, whether it is emotional appraisal, whoever it is that's taking this assessment, the assessment's not gonna be as meaningful if the person isn't ready to be coached. Terrific. Looking at the assessment world and seeing what the possibilities are for a speaker in building his or her business, we've seen a lot of different perspectives. What, in your own thinking and reflection on all this, has occurred to you that seems to be sort of the the profound keepers or insights about assessments and where they fit into the overall scheme of things for someone? So you have to make sure that the assessment you're going to use fits who you are. So first, research what you're doing, what decisions you're going to make about which one you use. Second, make sure it's a good fit for you. Third, I would then look real seriously at making sure that tool, that assessment, not only fits you, but fits the needs of your client and gives them what you are promising to provide. One of the things that I've noticed about assessments is almost always an assessment's use requires learning a new language. What are your observations on that? I don't care if you're going to call your colleagues a whale, lion, lamb, or sheep, a red, green, yellow, blue, mm-hmm. a D, an I, an S. Uh, the labels are usually inconsequential. It's what you do with that data. It's understanding how do you then explain to the person, the client, the the coaching client, the training client, here's how you use this data to get you at the result you're looking for. The use of assessments causes the user to become a better listener. Thank you, Monica. We appreciate your contribution to NSA and to VOE. My pleasure, Jim. Thank you for the opportunity. Great working with you as always. You bet. Our storytelling correspondent, Kevin McNulty, takes you through the process of crafting your own stories with this example of story and structure. Thank you, Jim. 
In this piece, I'm going to illustrate a model that's very useful for crafting and telling stories, and it's one that's followed by many of the great storytellers and writers. But first, to help me illustrate the model, I'm going to tell a short story by Harry Bushman that I've modified for this segment. It's called The Man by the Window. Now, it's been around a while, so some of your listeners may recognize it. In Jefferson Memorial Hospital, two men who were in really bad shape were confined to a small room. Vinny was in the bed by the window. He was doing very poorly after having a lung removed. In the other bed was Parker, who had been in an accident about a month ago and was forced to lie flat on his back. Now, the two men quickly became good companions. They talked a lot through the restless nights and early morning hours. They spoke of their families and their friends, their jobs, you know, just about everything and anything to pass the time and to keep boredom from setting in. Parker was particularly distressed about this situation. He, he felt lying on his back in a hospital bed was such a waste of the precious time he had left in this life. More, he was rather depressed because he, he just felt like he was losing track of the world outside and just uncertain about his future. Now, part of Vinny's treatment involved the nurse coming in every afternoon to sit him up and to allow the fluid in his lung to clear. And so while he was sitting up, he would give a full-blown description of what was going on outside. Parker just began to live for these moments. That one hour in a day where his world would be broadened and come alive by all the activity and color of the outside world. Parker would always ask, What do you see, Vinny? Well, it's a beautiful day. The kids must have the afternoon off from school. They're all over the park. Oh, and there's a little boy with a, a little boat. He sailed right through a line of ducks. Vinny was quite amazing in how he could describe in great detail all the beauty and happenings going on outside. You see, this one hour a day was magical. Parker would close his eyes and just relive the scenes that Vinny had so vividly painted for him. And Vinny, in turn, he felt like this great artist painting a picture for someone who could not see. And then one morning, the nurse arrived to check on the men, and she very sadly found that Vinny had died peacefully in his sleep. And although it was a short-lived friendship, Parker was very, very sad. After Vinny was taken away, Parker asked, Is it possible that I could be moved by the window? You know, where Vinny used to be. Sure, why not, she said. Then soon after being moved and the nurse had gone, Parker decided that he would slowly try to prop himself up just enough to look outside the window to see all the wonderful things that Vinny had told him about. So he strained in pain and slowly turned to look out the window, and to his great surprise, he saw only a blank brick wall. So perplexed, Parker called for the nurse and told her, Vinny used to describe to me all the wonderful things that were going on outside this window, but there's only a wall. The nurse responded, what are you talking about? Vinny was blind. At the beginning of this project, our host, Jim Cathcart, asked me to look into the question, what can we learn from professional storytellers? In the interest of this short segment, I'll only be able to focus on one aspect, and so I'm going to offer you a structure for crafting stories. Know that story crafting, development, telling is in large part an art, and so I want to encourage you to to use the story that I just told you as a real metaphor to storytelling. Meaning, like Vinny, learn to draw or paint a story for the minds of your audience. Secondly, become a strong editor with a discerning mind and eye. 
Now, to do this, it takes time. It takes practice and being very critical of your work. In fact, the original man in the window story is nearly 2,000 words or 12 minutes long. In any event, I can assure you that the greatest parts of a story often comes from the refining, polishing, and the editing. I'm going to share with you one of the oldest tried-and-true building blocks of a great story. It was developed in the 19th century by German playwright Gustav Freytag, known as Freytag's Pyramid. Freytag broke his stories into five parts, including the exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, and denouement, or the resolution. But I'm also going to add one more, and I call it the dip, which over the decades its use has grown to be more and more common. Now, when you craft a story, you can use this dramatic structure to frame, outline, and even analyze it. But also remember, it's just a framework, so it can be flexible in some ways. So the first element in Freytag's structure is the exposition. Now, this is the part of the story that essentially establishes background information for the audience, introducing the setting, the characters, you know, the significant events that happened before the story's main action. The exposition typically occurs at the beginning of the story, but it's not unusual for it to run throughout. So in writing your story, begin with an exposition, or let's just call it setting the scene. Now, if you were to go back to the story I just told, I think the exposition is fairly obvious. What's not so obvious, however, is the next element, the rising action. This is the part of the story where an event or a series of events starts building up, and there's somewhat of a hint that the story is leading to a climax. The rising action can be subtle and subjective. Whatever the case, it builds tension or even conflict designed to hook your audience. Now go back to the story I told. Can you find hints of the rising action? It may not be obvious and, again, is somewhat subjective. I personally feel the tension building where the story suggests that Parker began to just live for these moments. Others might suggest that the rise in action starts towards the end, where Vinny died. In any event, in the rise in action, you create events to build the tension and working towards a climax. Next is the dip. Now, this is the element that's not found in Freytag's Pyramid. The dip is when the protagonist or leading character faces a setback of some sort, you know, during the rise in action of the story. These little emotional spikes are things like when your protagonist makes a bad decision. Perhaps he stays up too late and then is too tired the next day to focus on the task at hand or he misses the flight or something along this line. Okay, back to the story. Can you identify the dip? Or is there one? What about when Vinny dies? It is a setback. I really enjoy this part of story writing because you can get pretty clever and creative writing these little setbacks. So again, write dips during the rising action and in working towards your climax. The overall effect should be that the setbacks build tension and set up the big boom, which of course is next in Freytag's structure, the climax. Now the climax is the turning point of your story. It's when the protagonist faces his primary challenge and the action comes to a head. This usually means that things may have gone wrong badly for him until now, but then turns out great or vice versa. The best climaxes are those that seem inevitable without being predictable. Again, back to the story. Where is the climax? I submit it takes place when Parker finally sees out the window, but discovers that there's only a brick wall on the other side. Now, once your story peaks with a climax, you'll then want to craft a falling action, which is the next element of a story. The falling action is a point in a story where the conflict begins to unwind. This happens more rapidly than the rising action and can sometimes contain sort of a final moment of doubt where your audience is still unsure about the conclusion. In the window story, it begins to unwind when Parker calls the nurse in to ask about Vinny and what he was seeing. 
The idea here is to fall into a final resolution, assuming there is one. And this is where the denouement comes into play. The denouement is the final unraveling of the plot up to the end where often whatever the audience was intrigued by in the story is answered. A sense of finality or a resolution, if you will, is reached. By the way, many stories don't include a denouement. An example is the all-annoying cliffhanger. As for the window story, if there is a final resolution, it's when Parker discovers that Vinny was blind. Other storytellers might suggest, however, that there really is no denouement in this short story. So there you have it, Jim. There's a framework that speakers can use to build their stories. Now, in the next segment, I'm actually going to coach somebody. We're going to take an event and build it into a great story. I guarantee you'll like it. Since one Kevin is never quite enough, we have another Kevin interview. This one from Kevin O'Connor, who is interviewing his sister, Karen. Karen has authored 75 books. Yes, I said 75. She'll show you how to succeed in writing and publishing. This is Kevin O'Connor, and I'm with my sister, Karen, who is a writer, speaker, teacher, and she's doing a lot of what speakers want to do, which is write a book. So what's the secret to writing a book? Well, I don't know if there's a secret. The reality is, just like anything else, it takes some um, doing, some rolling up your shirt sleeves and inquiring um, at conferences, uh, getting online and finding classes that you can take about publishing, sort of getting into the industry through a friend or um, a professional organization that can, um, you know, help you find the steps and then take the steps to writing a book. But the most important thing is the desire and then having a really good idea. Many of us have what they call a passion or they they will have a topic, that sort of stuff. But then it seems Mm -hmm. like to take that and then to go to the next step takes a long time. It sounds like you're advocating that they get some help then. Absolutely. I'm I'm really big on that. When I wanted to learn to knit, I didn't just buy a knitting book of needles and yarn and try and teach myself. I went to the experts. Mm -hmm. Hang out with people who are in that field so that you can take some shortcuts and you don't have to do everything on your own. And you get good fellowship that way, too. I think typically, unless you're a celebrity, somebody that has a really high presence in the world, um, then oftentimes publishers go to them. And they even say, we would love to have your name on a book, and if you don't have time, we can set you up with a ghostwriter or, you know, a, a coordinator who will, you know, work with your notes and your passion and get the book out. But I'd say by and large in my community, um, because I'm not in that echelon, I go to the publisher or actually to my agent with my ideas, and then she pitches them, and then I get the contract. But the thing that, that I have to do first is my basic homework, and that is, find the publishing company that is publishing the the type of things that I want to do and then match up. When I started, I was doing children's books and I saw that um, a company in New York was doing some books for kids and they were how-to books, you know, how to throw a party, how to keep your room clean, how to learn to skateboard, whatever it was. And they didn't have anything on finances and that was something I was kind of interested in at the time. So I wrote a query, which is a letter proposing an idea Um, Would they like, you know, this particular title, you know, how to make money or, you know, Kids Guide to Financial Freedom or something like that. And it would fit into this particular concise guide series for teens that they were publishing. And I got a contract based on that because I looked to see who was doing what, found my niche, proposed a book based on what I knew, and then I read a bunch of those books to see how 
mine could fit into that particular style. So that's a great way to, to break in is to, to um, go into an existing series. And what I find is that some of the talented people I've worked with never finish their book because they don't have that part. But there are people who aren't that great at writing, but they can learn the craft, but they have the, you know, I'm going to do it attitude, and they do. And so um, it's kind of a little bit of both. Do you ever get a, a writer's block? You know, I know it sounds crazy, but that has never happened to me. I find that writer's block, and this I don't mean to be judgmental, but it's kind of a convenient excuse for not taking the next step. Because if you feel blocked about something, probably you have maybe a situation in your personal life that needs some attention. Maybe you haven't done enough research on your topic. Maybe you need a fresh approach, and so it would be good to go to a conference on that or read a book about that subject or talk to colleagues who are a little bit more knowledgeable. I mean, I've done all of those things regarding books that I wanted to write. Is there a a role for a speaker with self-published books? I think so. If they have a captive audience, um, I think that's a great way to go. And you can get your books out there faster. I have a friend, Jim, in uh, the publishing industry, book writing and so on. He's a very successful novelist. He publishes traditionally, and then he's recently started publishing digitally some of his old novels that are out of print, and he's now writing specifically for the digital market. They're short novels that he is going to go directly to Amazon with, and uh, he hopes to make a couple grand a month by just, even if he sells them for 99 cents a piece. But the hitch there is he has the audience from his previous traditional publishing. You know, if Joe Blow decides to just suddenly write a book on speaking or a novel and stick it on Amazon and all he has is 25 friends, well, that's not going to make any money. Publishers no longer take people on if they don't have a speaking platform, a teaching platform, or some contact with the larger world that will help sell books. How intentional should we be as writers when we're doing something like a blog? Is that okay to be a little more casual? Well, I think it's okay to be casual, especially if you have your audience already and you have a, you know, kind of a rapport with them. So, yes, I'm very intentional about my blog, but I also put myself out there, which my publisher loves, by being a guest blogger then that would be even more intentional. And when you get a little bit of a presence, you know, like you have, for example, or some many of your speaking friends, people invite you to blog. And, you know, and I make a little bit of money on that, not much, and some of them I do for free, but then that brings people back to my website and my blog and my book. And you just keep kind of working the system, working your um, audience. And I don't, working it, I don't mean taking advantage of them, but I mean being there, you know, being a presence in their lives, talking to them, writing to them, emailing them if they write to you. I probably spend um, maybe more time than some people would even advise me to, but that's the humanitarian in me. I love the interaction with people, and I love hearing their stories, and I love encouraging them. So, you know, it's all part of the game. And I encourage anyone who wants to write a book and has a passion for it uh, to uh, take that step of faith, so to speak, and start, you know, by taking a class, attending a conference, Thanks very much, Karen. This was was delightful. Thank you, Kevin. It was a real privilege, and I just wish the best of luck and encouragement to everyone who's listening. On May 1st through the 3rd, in New York City, NSA is holding the Mega Million Publishing Lab, chaired by prolific author of 46 books, Diana Boer. Let's take a look at this exciting event. 
Tell us about the Mega Million Publishing Lab. This publishing lab really is for those who want to publish traditionally with major publishers and those who self-published. It is focused totally on selling more books. And who doesn't want to sell more books? The idea is to hear only what works, the Mm -hmm. best ideas from those really who've sold at least a million copies. And so that's the idea. And they're not going to be just telling their war stories. This is how I did it. I have asked them to tell me, one or two key ideas that was their most successful selling technique. And I'm giving them only a short window and focus on that for 25 minutes. So when you leave that Mega Million workshop, you will have 12 or 15 ideas that worked wonderfully for these people and you will know how they did it, when they did it, what was their timeline, mm. resources used. Where's it going to be? It's going to be in New York City, right there where New the New York City? <laughs> right where the agents and editors are. We're going to have a pitch room. So we're we're going to have a little contest. I'm not going to give you all the details okay. of the contest so that anybody who has an idea ready to go and a proposal ready to go will have an opportunity to sit down for 15 minutes with an agent or an editor to pitch that idea. Oh, wow. We're designing this so if it is your first book and you just have an idea, or if it, you've written 20 books. I, I have written 46 books, and I have a lot to learn. Believe me, I have a lot to learn. I want to pick up ideas from other people. The value of someone who's published a lot is to partner with other other people who could be joint venture partners with yeah. them. It's to learn things that you haven't tried in your sales effort. It's to strengthen your proposals. Well, they're going to tell you what are the new trends that we see in publishing and in, in proposals. What are some of the other topics? I, I'm going to talk about selling as part of a series. You know, sometimes some ways that people have sold their million copies or three million copies is being a series. Chicken soup for the soul. Yes, the series, right. That sort of thing. Uh, right. I'm going to talk about foreign sales. Maybe you've done really well in the U.S. but have not done so well overseas. Licensing, packaging your books so that corporations have to buy. They can't have you to speak if, if they don't buy. There's several specialists in that area. I'm going to be talking about launching blasts, virtual tours, uh, social media to promote, email blasts, incentive bundlings, giving away your book to help launch it so that then it starts selling. Uh, How about free webinars? How much do you tell? And then how do you follow up with that book afterwards to make it work? Blogging to turn it into book sales? How do you really do that? Um, The best place to get reviews? PR. People waste so much money. I have wasted on one particular book $50,000 just down the drain. So I'm going to tell you about the mistakes. How do you tell what's a good PR firm? Should you go with placement? Should you do retainer? And how do you know the difference? How do you measure? How do you pick out a good PR firm? Wow. I'm pumped and ready to go. We'll see you in New York. Thank you, Jim. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Diana. And now here's your CLO, Greg Williams, with Bill Backrack on the CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame. Hello, NSA and GSF members. This is Greg Williams, your CLO, Chief Listening Officer for VOE, saying, Welcome to this edition of Glad You Asked. Every month in this segment of VOE, we will address burning questions that you, the listener, has on your mind. Here to discuss questions that have been sent in pertaining to the CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame is the current chairperson of the CPAE Leadership Committee, CSP, CPAE, Bill Backrack. 
Bill, tell our listeners what is the CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame and how is it conferred? Well, CPAE stands for the Council of Peers Award for Excellence. It's the National Speakers Association Speaker Hall of Fame. And how is one nominated for consideration? The first step is to do an enormous amount of speaking at a very strong level of effectiveness, building an incredible business and a valuable brand, and as a result, you'll get noticed by other CPAEs. Then one or more of those Speaker Hall of Fame members in good standing with NSA will be so impressed that you will be nominated. Nominations are called for in the fall and submitted in writing by CPAEs who strongly believe the candidate meets all seven criteria to be in the Speaker Hall of Fame. There are usually 40 to 70 people nominated every year. Next, all of those NSA members who've been nominated are voted on by the entire CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame membership. This voting process reduces to 20, the number who are then more thoroughly vetted by the seven-person CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame Selection Committee. The seven members of the CPAE Selection Committee are anonymous. Only the CPAE Selection Committee, the CPAE Leadership Committee, and a few key NSA staffers are even aware of who the Selection Committee members are. And for the record here, I am not on the CPAE Selection Committee. I am the chair of the CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame Leadership Committee, and you can't serve on both committees at the same time. Is there criteria required for nomination? Oh, yes, definitely. It's probably more than you realize. Number one, material. Is the speaking material significant, valid, and original? Number two, style. How well do the speaker's personality and style mesh? Has the speaker developed a distinctive personal platform style? Number three, experience. How much professional and non-professional speaking has the speaker actually done? Number four, delivery. How proficient are the speaker's mechanics of delivery? Number five, image. What type of image has the speaker developed among the public, clients, and peers? Number six, professionalism. How does the speaker deal with clients, meeting planners, and other speakers? Criteria number seven is communication. Is the speaker able to get a message or points across to the audience? How does the speaker relate to the audience? Is the communication appropriate to the situation? So after that first cut, the final 20 are reviewed in minute detail by the CPAE Selection Committee. Many, many hours of video are reviewed, websites are poured over, clients are contacted, non-selection committee CPEs can be contacted for feedback about a nominee's character or professionalism off the stage. A maximum of five new CPAEs can be inducted into the Speaker Hall of Fame, and there is a significant amount of time invested into research, healthy discussion, and sometimes rigorous debate before an agreement is reached to induct one new member. Some CPAEs have been inducted the first time they were nominated, and the most I know of is someone who was nominated 20 years in a row before they were inducted. Wow, that really is a rigorous process. Outside of receiving the award, what does the group of Hall of Famers do? 
Well, we organized the banquet and the CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame Awards Night at the NSA National Convention. CPAEs tend to be successful and very generous with their time, so you often see them leading sessions at various conventions and other NSA events. They also do quite a bit of informal mentoring of other speakers. Uh, some study groups and masterminds are CPAE only. So just to wrap up, let me say that Jim Rohn had some good advice that might be applicable if you think you'd like to be a CPAE. He said, set a goal to become a millionaire, not for the money, but for what it will make of you to become one. And I would paraphrase that and say, set a goal to be a CPAE, not for the award itself, but for what it will make of you to become one. So I hope that helps take some of the mystery out of our Hall of Fame, inspires a few people to set CPAE as a goal, and when you're sitting at this year's CPAE Awards Banquet in San Diego, maybe you'll have a bit more appreciation for the work, the commitment, and the excellence that precedes every CPAE's walk onto that stage to receive that cute little acrylic statue. Thank you, Bill. Until next time, this is your Chief Listening Officer, Greg Williams, and... I'm glad you asked. Thanks, guys. Because in this land, it's alright to be from a small town or a medium sized town or some big. Scary town for as long as we live in America. I recently got a call from veteran NSAer Janie Jason to introduce me to her friend and colleague Chez Reginiak. This amazing man escaped from communist Poland and ultimately gained political asylum in America, where he learned English and has become a successful professional speaker and entertainer. His story is compelling and his talent and energy are contagious. Let's do it again. Well, today I get to welcome to VOE, Chez Reginiak. Welcome to VOE, Chez. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great honor for me. I appreciate it very, very much. Could you give Thank us you. just a little a little history? Tell us about your youth in Poland and, and the transition mm-hmm. to freedom and to living in America. You know, I grew up in communist Poland. But when I grew up in Poland, it was still Cold War. It was quite terrible. I participated in anti-communist government strikes. My family was on the government's blacklist. So it was quite miserable. In 1979, I was done with a two-year college. And I entered the workforce. At that point, solidarity became the key player in Poland. Right. Within, Within one year, 20 million people joined the the union and the orders would come from Lake Valenza from Gdańsk saying tomorrow tomorrow we stop working at noon and literally the whole country would stop it was like a surreal thing yeah the bus the buses stopped the train stopped all the factories would stop and soon the government uh, noticed was losing control over the country yeah so they would send soldiers to those factories and then we would strike and then we would barricade ourselves and then the arrest the rest started sure and then when things got out of control they decided to declare the martial law and the polish president jaruzelski received order from moscow saying if you don't 
come take care of your country, we will come and take care of it for you. Just wow. like they did just like they did in Czechoslovakia or Hungary, 50s, sure. 60s. And they started to control the union, you know, the movement from inside out. But you know, stores completely empty. Yeah. Uh, man disappearing at night and never seen again. Nobody knows mm. what's going to happen. Food rationed. Here I am, 23, 24 year old. I have nothing, literally nothing. Every weekend I go to see my parents. The police shows up within minutes just just to say hello, just enough to make your hand shake and worry about everything you do, everything yeah. you say to anybody. And then the arrest occurred when I was working for a factory in Austin and they arrested about 30 of us and we got some beating. And finally I said, I'm 25, May of 85. I said, I'm 25. Is this how my life will play out? Yeah. And I said, no, I just can't accept that. And that's when I decided to escape. So with a really heavy heart, I said goodbye to my beloved land and, mm -hmm. and my friends and family. Gosh, and that I, had to be tremendously oh, it difficult. It was the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. So I went to Italy to see the Polish Pope. You remember John Paul II yep. was the Pope then. Yep. But, it, but in Venice, I separated myself from the group. They, they went to Vatican. And I quickly, as fast as I could, I traveled to the border between Italy and Austria. And right by the border, I ate my last can of tuna, my last slice of bread. And... And I crossed the Alps on foot. Three days later, hungry, thirsty, tired, like never before. I found the refugee camp in Treiskirchen, Austria, close to Vienna. Mm -hmm. and, and I spent six months in the camp. But four months into my stay, I received the American asylum. Yes, sir. Wow. And so okay. you get to the United States and you bring us through that process. <laughs> well... I arrived on December 11th after a huge blizzard mm -hmm. in Des Moines, Iowa, out of all those states. Yeah. And I, the first book I received from my sponsor was the Polish English Dictionary. And that was the beginning. But there were no jobs. And I knew that the quality of my life very much depends on my ability to speak the language. Yes. So I study English from sunrise to sunset. Every day I took 10 words with me to work and I repeated each word 1,000 times to the rhythm of the press that I operated. And then we moved to Twin Cities. I got married to an American, so that helped too. Sure. Around 2000, uh, some church invited me to speak just tell the story, you know, the first generation story. It's a good story to hear. So I went over there and I was so excited that there are people actually willing to listen to me. And, and at the end of that uh, short program in the church, a lady came to me, older lady. She gave me a hug and she said, thank you for sharing the story. And you know, you can make money doing this. <laughs> and I say, what do you mean? They pay for speaking? And she said, yes. I said, oh, this is just unbelievable. Wow. But I went through Toastmasters and, and I pushed really hard. I achieved a distinguished Toastmaster in 30 months. 
I competed in the international speech contest. I did okay. Yeah. And and then finally somebody connected me with the Minnesota chapter of NSA. Yeah. Yes. And I went to the very first meeting where I met Janie Jason. And she yes. absolutely brags about you and just glows when she talks. Well, you know, for me to meet somebody of her caliber and to see how she works and how she creates the stories, how she works with the audience, it was just a truly a gift, a miracle. So, uh, and then I joined NSA and the journey has begun. (laughs) Something that that I notice is the joy and the gratitude that you express. Well, it's the first generation. You know, we better be grateful and we better appreciate everything <laughs> we have here. I, I am so grateful that America, that people like you, opened the door for me. Because by receiving the American asylum, this country opened the door for me. And because of that, everything changed. Everything. I mean, look at this. I came with nothing, no English. I'm a professional speaker. Yeah. Only in only in America, right? In, only uh, in absolutely. America. Absolutely. Only. absolutely, absolutely. You know. So for me, the job is to give back for everything that I received. Give everything. Give my gifts and talents, no matter how no matter how big or small they are. Just use them. Use them. So when I leave this world, there's nothing left. <laughs> I use it all. I use it all. You know. And then if, if I can make, if I can touch one heart in the audience, if I can touch one heart, if I can help one student believe that education is crucial in this world, if there is one teenager that will put, a, put the phone away and pay attention, you know, mission accomplished. For me is, am I doing the most with what I have been given to help this country because wow. I care I care greatly, greatly about America. My children are here, I'm going to die here. I want to do I want to do all I can to make it better for the next generation that come. I want to talk about how you use music. How do you incorporate that? How do you make that relevant to someone paying you for something other than a dance? You know, music was always part of my journey when mm-hmm. I left Poland. So <laughs> So it was always there. My mother, 86 years old, I just talked to her today. She still goes and she dances polka every week. So never good. We're never good at this. But it was always part of our soul. You know, it always part of our culture. I love that. But I never took it too seriously until until I went to the NSA Mm -hmm. and I talked to some people. And there was Janie Jason who saw me strummy guitar and she said do you know rosita perez and i said no she said you know she's gone now but you need to watch some of her videos so i went and i'm thinking oh my goodness this is really cool people love it she's having fun the chemistry in the audience in the room changed the energy went up so the next thing i know i am writing a polka when I come on stage, as I tell, I am not a performing artist. I just love doing this. And I hope that you appreciate your talents 
whatever they are, as much as I do appreciate mine. And I have a song for you. And then I will may, I may write a song, maybe just a chorus and a verse for that particular audience. Mm-hmm. And it really, really works. It sure does. It's the right brain activity. We're attracted yeah. to the uniqueness of the fun and, and the courage it takes to, to perform something in front of the people. So since then, I drag the guitar wherever I go. I want to thank you very much for being part of VOE. Thank you very much, Jim. Hello, everybody. And polka on. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to know how to do the polka the right way? That's how it gets done. Everybody in North America wants to know how to polka. And now our president, Ron Carr. This past February... We saw another transition of The Tonight Show host from Jay Leno to Jimmy Fallon. In fact, it was the seventh transition in the history of the show. In fact, Jay Leno transitioned twice. You may remember that a few years ago, he was fired by NBC when they brought in Conan O'Brien and he was put in the 10 o'clock slot at night. Jay was a little bit upset. He was even cracking jokes against NBC. But then, all of a sudden, Jay is invited back to host again The Tonight Show. And people thought that he basically was so upset that he undermined Conan. In fact, he was accused of masterminding Conan's demise. In February, when he gave up The Tonight Show for the final time, he was interviewed by a reporter. And the reporter said, you know, how come you let NBC put you at 10 o'clock? And Jay's response was simple. He said, listen, you think I have that much power? I'm just an employee. If NBC says that you're done with a Tonight Show and you're going on at 10 o'clock, that's what you're going to do. I may not like it, but that was their decision. It wasn't mine. Then the reporter said, but then you came back and people think that you undermined Conan. Was that true? He goes, again, that's the furthest thing from the truth. Again, NBC is a big company. I don't have say in that. The only reason why they asked me to come back was because the station managers wanted to bring me back because the ratings were down. But it was not my call. Then the reporter asked him this question. He said, so if you weren't responsible for Conan's demise, why didn't you say something about it to protect yourself when he came back to The Tonight Show? And Jay's answer really impressed me. He said, listen, I'm a millionaire. I make a ton of money doing what I like to do. When a millionaire gets fired, do you think anybody else cares? There are lots of people in this country who are losing their jobs day after day who don't have the resources that I do. So do you really think that they want to hear me talking about my problems? There's only one thing they want to hear me do when they come on that show at 1130 at night. They want to hear a good joke. They want levity. And they want to be put in a good mood so that they can get a good night's sleep. And that's what I do at night. And when you think about it, isn't that what we do as speakers? You see, we have to look at the stories that we use in the platform. Are we using stories for our own self-therapy? Or are we using stories that are there for the audience? You see, the audiences don't want us to do self-therapy on them. But as Glenna Salisbury says, a mentor and a good friend of mine, if you're going to tell a story, it better have a point and it better have an application. A few years ago... I was brought in by a company that I've worked with for many years to present at the national sales meeting. They hired a very famous athlete who is now a radio commentator to give the motivational keynote. 
I asked some of the audience members at the end of the talk what they thought about it. And they said he told a lot of great locker room stories. But at the end of the day, what did it mean for me? How did it impact my life? And they rated it so-so. On a scale of 0 to 10, he probably got a rating of a 5. So when you are presenting your stories to your audiences, are you helping them figure out how to apply the key point to their lives so they can create positive impacts? You know, recently I went to Australia for the Australian Speakers Conference, and I managed to get to see Bruce Springsteen again in concert, who I believe Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band are probably one of the best rock and roll bands of all time, but that's just me, another Jersey boy. But what really impressed me about Bruce is that a reporter interviewed him one time and said, you know, you keep customizing your shows no matter where you are anywhere on the planet. Why do you do this? Now, when you think about it, Bruce Springsteen has a slew of number one hits. All he has to do is take that stage with a band and just play and the audience will just soak it up. But Bruce says, "Uh uh-uh, you cannot do that. Every time Bruce hits the streets in a city that he goes into, whether it's in the U.S. or another country, he immediately starts reading the newspapers. He immediately starts watching the news on TV. And he starts customizing the song set for the next night. Sometimes he'll open up a song that is relevant to that geographical area. Sometimes if it's a foreign country, he will open up with a saying or a monologue in their native language. But according to Bruce, he goes, anybody can come on the stage and play. But the real magic is connecting with the audience. And they have to really believe that you understand them, that you know their language, that you know what they're going through. Because when they can believe that, that's when they open up to you. And that's when you can start having a great concert. So we all talk about doing these questionnaires for our clients, interviewing them beforehand. But what about getting to the venue ahead of time? What about talking to people on site? What about listening to some of the other speakers, some of the executives, and hear about some of the challenges that they're going through? So that when you take your stage, and you're doing your rehearsed speech, and you're doing your canned stories, maybe, just maybe, you'll get a couple of nuggets from which you can flex and customize on the spot to tell the audience that you're speaking to, I know what you're going through, and this is how my story My point is relevant to you. As influencers, the key to influence is not the words that we use. It's the context and how we present those words. As you're listening to this message, it's April. Thank God, because all of us are looking for warmer times these days. It's been a rough winter. But April also signals the rebirth of spring, the renewal, as flowers start to grow anew. So as we go into this season of renewal... How about looking at your stories and asking yourselves, what part of these stories do I need to freshen up? So when I take that stage again, I'm being viewed by the audience as being on target, up to date, and relevant. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Once you get home from the Mega Million Publishing Lab, be sure to repack your bags for the exciting annual convention in San Diego. Greetings, NSA. I'm Waldo Waldman, the wingman, Dan Thurman's deputy flight lead for the National Speakers Association 2014 Annual Convention, 29 June through 2 July in beautiful San Diego. The convention theme this year is Perform, and every program is designed to provide you tools and tactics to grow not only your platform skills, but your business as well. 
from amazing keynoters such as inspirational artist Eric Wall and legendary storyteller Nancy Duarte to CEO sessions with Forbes Magazine CEO Steve Forbes and Kevin Harrington, one of the original judges from the TV show Shark Tank, our main stage will leave you inspired and engaged. But most importantly, our powerful, content-packed business development sessions will absolutely make Perform 2014 worth the price of admission. Dan and I guarantee an experience that will help you break barriers and grow your business. So take action now, strap in, fire up your afterburners, and register for Perform 2014 at www.nsaspeaker.org. We look forward to flying with you. I hope by now you've become accustomed to using the VOE mobile app for both Speaker Magazine and Voices of Experience. Send NSAVOE in a text message to 96392 in order to download the app to your phone. Please send us an email to let us know what you like and what you want from VOE. We not only listen, we even have a chief listening officer. Voices of Experience is brought to you by the editorial staff of the National Speakers Association and the Voices of Experience team. Alina Ettringer of High Point University, John Schwartz, also known as Vinnie Borelli, Rocky Heyer of Master Video, and I'm proud to be your VOE chair. This is Jim Cathcart, NSA. Stay tuned. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.